Hi, re-readers. This is Hank. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Apology of Socrates by Plato. We'll hear from Stephen Smith of Yale. It's important to remember that Socrates wasn't just tried by any city; he was tried by a democracy. It was democracy that put Socrates on trial, and you could say that Plato's works were his attempt to put democracy on trial. Katya Vod of Columbia. So you're using that term all the time, but do you actually know what it means? So what is justice? What is wisdom? And then once someone is putting that question to you as a kind of direct question, all of a sudden it seems like you don't know the answer, and that is meant to somehow also be perplexing. And Alexander Nehemas of Princeton. He thinks you need to know what virtue is if you're going to live a virtuous and a happy life. I, Socrates, don't know what virtue is, and so I don't know how to live a virtuous and a happy life. And if I don't know how to do it, then I can't live it. And yet, the way that Plato portrays him and the way that Plato describes him, he lived as virtuous a life as anybody ever did. Written in the fourth century BC, this dialogue is Plato's recounting of his teacher Socrates' defense speech before the city of Athens. Spoiler alert. Socrates does not succeed in saving himself, though, as you will hear, perhaps he succeeded in deeper ways. By the way, why is it called an apology? The word apologia means recent defense in Greek. Professor Stephen Smith has taught at Yale since 1984, and is the Alfred Kaus Professor of Political Science. He has served as director of graduate studies in political science and director of the special program in the humanities. His research has focused on the history of political philosophy, with special attention to the problem of the ancient and moderns, the relation of religion and politics, and theories of representative government. Hi, Professor Smith. I'm so glad you could be here today. First of all, I will just start with a brief summarization of what I what I learned the most from your YouTube lectures. I think the main point of your lecture is. This philosopher Socrates in apology is often seen as a kind of innocent, harmless philosopher who's <laughs> persecuted by、um, the city of Athens. But in fact, kind of under the surface, apology actually reveals constant tension between the philosopher and the city. And you know, Socrates is not as harmless as he seems. He could be potentially dangerous to the basis of the city. Is that a valid way of describing what you're saying? I think that's an excellent summary, and yeah, summary of of what I, the, the general approach I tried to adopt in that in that lecture. What mindset should we bring to Plato's Apology to make the most of it? That's a, a good good way to start off because when you approach、uh, a Platonic work or Any work, for that matter, you have to first know what kind of questions you're going to、uh, ask of it, and what you're hoping to learn from from that text. Let me just say a, a little bit about that. When you say what mindset should we bring to it, I think one of the things that we should bear in mind, and this will sound awfully obvious, but in a sense, it isn't that obvious, is that we should bear in mind that. Plato's writings are dialogues. Even the Apology, which is a defense speech of Socrates, contains dialogic elements. He's 
cross-examining his accusers, Anatus and Melitus, and of course he's speaking before an audience, an audience of his fellow citizens, an audience of his jurors. So we always have to remember that Socrates is speaking to other, to specific other people and for specific occasions, and it's important to bear that in mind. Why? Because it's important for us to remember that Socrates is a character in a play or reading a platonic dialogue is in many ways more like reading a play or a novel or a story as much as it is reading a piece of philosophy. Plato gives each of his dialogues a dramatic structure very similar to that of a play. It carries, bears certainly more in common with that than it does a standard treatise, which is the form that most philosophy today takes. And therefore, we should look at Socrates as a character in a complex debate with different people, different kinds of people. Sometimes we see Socrates arguing with other philosophers, as he does in dialogues like Parmenides or dialogues like Protagoras, but also we see Socrates arguing with citizens and potential statesmen in dialogues like the Republic or or the Apology itself. We see him presenting his arguments before a range of different human types. And therefore, it's very important for us to remember that we are reading a work, a complex work, in which the views of Socrates should not simply be taken just as a kind of literal mouthpiece for Plato, but once again, as an important, an important even many ways, a privileged point of view within a spectrum of opinions that Plato wants us, the readers, to explore. So that, that's what I would say is a starting point to the question of, of what we should bring to the dialogue and what we should kind of bear in mind as, we're, as we read along with Plato. Yes, I totally agree that the dramatic context of those dialogues can really enrich our understanding of Plato's dialogues. I remember a point uh, in your lecture that I found very interesting. It's in apologies, Socrates is actually attempting to kind of reform a sort of Socratic citizenship mm-hmm. in order to replace what we might call uh, an Athenian citizenship, in which okay. citizens are maybe obedient to the laws, but a Socratic citizen might be might operate within his own moral conscience or his own moral judgments. Right, but he didn't really succeed that he was put to death by Athens by the end. But do you think that form of citizenship is really viable? That's a great question. Uh, you can say, like a lot of people, Socrates may not have achieved immediate success in his own time. But if you want to take a, a longer picture of the thing, you might say he was enormously successful. Yes, Socrates was we know he was tried, he was executed. He was executed in part because of his, we could talk about this if you'd like, but his, you know, the antagonistic stance he took, he took to, the, to the jury, more or less taunting them and 
challenging them to to give him the, the you know the the death sentence as, as as it were. And yet, when you look at the kind of longer term effects of Socrates on political life, you could say he was enormously successful. The first time I read the apology when I was in college in the early 70s, it was during the Vietnam War, and the apology was widely read at that time as a statement about civil disobedience. Here is Socrates standing up and refusing, in the apology at least, to buckle under to the authorities and to stand in a kind of proud defiance of his own moral integrity against the against the demands of the politicians and the people bringing him to trial. And that was for many people the way in which Socrates was interpreted over over time. And again, I you know, I love the side of it of, you know, Socrates, we don't want you saying that anymore. And Socrates saying, I have to keep on saying what I think is the truth, even if it costs me my life. Yes. Come on. How cool is that? Right. In our own political tradition, um, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau's famous essay on civil disobedience is also cited as a kind of Socratic uh, refusal to bow to authority. And then more immediately or more recently, figures like Gandhi and Martin Luther King in their opposition, uh, Gandhi's opposition to the British Empire, British imperial policy, King's to Southern segregation statutes seem to be in one way a sort of expression of the Socratic, what you call or I call in my essay, Socratic citizen, the, the Socratic citizen who puts his own moral integrity, his own moral integrity prior to the p- power of the law. And for many people, many students of my generation, who, again, who came to these texts initially in the 60s and 70s in the context of Vietnam, Socrates was definitely a kind of hero of that kind of tradition of civil disobedience. I've come over time to think that that's a much simplified and conception of Socrates and not, not altogether one I, I share today. But it is the way in which a lot of people come to this dialogue and they approach the dialogue. And it does show the way in which in which Socrates has that kind of Socratic position has over time had a very powerful influence on the way we think about the individual's relationship to society. What do you think Plato was trying to accomplish in writing the Apology? I think he was trying to, you know, explore the um, couple of things. I mean, one of which we've been already talking about, and that is to explore this tension between the individual, one way of putting it would be between the individual and society or the individual and authority, between the philosopher and the city. There is that that tension going on, certainly, and that's that to me is the core thesis of the apology, and to some degree, I'll exaggerate a bit, but just, I would say even the core problem that he explores, he, Plato, explores in his, in his, in his work as a whole. It's clearly something that is central to the Republic as well. One of the things that sets the apology apart from the other dialogues is, is a couple of things, which Plato helps us explore. For 
One, we hear Socrates defend at some considerable length. We hear him defend himself and his way of life before the city. And when I say his way of life, I think that's a term that I mean literally. Philosophy for Plato and Socrates was not just a discipline as it has become today, you know, that someone needs, you go to graduate school, you get a degree, a PhD, and then you're licensed to teach philosophy in some place. That's not, not really what Socrates or Plato understood by philosophy. It was for them a way of life. It was a way of living in the world. It wasn't just a discipline. It was, it was how, it was a program for how to live. And in the, in the apology, I think in a way more than other dialogues, we see explicitly or through Socrates' words, how he understood philosophy. Again, not simply as an intellectual exercise, but as a way of life. And we hear that, and this brings me to the second point I want to make about what he was trying to accomplish. By way of a brief and somewhat elliptic autobiography that Socrates gives in the Apology, where he explains how he explains this by way of what he calls the two accusers or the two sets of accusers that have been brought charges against him. He speaks about the first set of accusers and that by that he clearly is referring to Aristophanes, the famous poet who satirized Socrates in his famous play, Clouds, The Clouds, where Socrates is shown initially as a kind of natural scientist exploring astronomy and physics. And as I believe the charges, looking at the things in the heavens and, and below the earth, using that as a, as a kind of way of challenging the authority of the gods. But we see Socrates and initial accusers thought of him as a kind of natural scientist, a kind of physicist in the way that traditional what we call pre-Socratic philosophy explored the, the various elements composing the universe and so on and so on. But in the course of that discussion, Socrates tells us of something of a turn in his own education, in his own life, in his own education. I won't go into the details, but one of his acolytes, one of his disciples asks the Delphic Oracle, you know, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? Oracle says no. And Socrates then goes on another turn. We could call this the Socratic turn, where he, he turns away from subjects of natural philosophy to the questions of, as he says, who has knowledge of the human being and the citizen? Who's wisest in the world in the world of the human being and the citizen? That, and that you might call Socrates' discovery of political philosophy. He turns away from the questions of the heavens and the below the earth to the questions of the city and the virtues of the human being and the citizen. So in the, the apology an extraordinary, interesting dialogue for, again, this little autobiography that Socrates gives of himself and the way in which the, how the questions of, of politics and ethics, virtue of the human being and the citizen became for him the central ones. And that's, of course, why we think of Plato or Socrates, too, as the founder of the discipline of this political philosophy because uh, of, of this story that he tells in the Apology.
what makes this text still important and relevant for people to read today? I think what it brings out is the tension between democracy and philosophy. It's important to remember that Socrates wasn't just tried by any city. He was tried by a democracy. It was the democracy that put Socrates on trial. And you could say that Plato's works were his attempt to put democracy on trial. And it is, it raises questions for us today about was Athens right to condemn Socrates or, or to or to banish him, or is the philosopher right in, or the individual right in challenging the city? Whenever I teach the apology, whether it's to a lecture class with a lot of people in it or just a, a seminar, I always start with the question, imagine you are in the jury and you have just heard this speech. Socrates has just given this speech. How would you have voted? And it's interesting what people say, but the point is, for me, there is no question more important than this problem about democracy and philosophy that the apology raises. It's, the, it's not only, I think, the, the best introduction to Plato's philosophy, it may simply be the best introduction to philosophy that, that we have. So I think there's nothing more relevant or important today than, than, this, than this short and kind of endlessly fascinating dialogue. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful responses. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Katya Vogt is a professor of philosophy at Columbia University with a specialty in ancient philosophy, ethics, and normative epistemology. She's a recipient of the Distinguished Columbia Faculty Award at Columbia University. Professor Vogt is interested in questions that figure both in ancient and contemporary discussions. For example, what are values, what kind of values are knowledge and truth, and what does it mean to want one's life to go well? Hi, Professor Vogt. I'm glad you could be here today. So first of all, I would like to start this conversation with a very general question. What mindset should we bring to Plato's apology to make the most of it? That's... A question that someone who is working on Plato would probably answer by saying, well, a lot of mindsets, the mindsets that come from different philosophical perspectives, you know, the dialogues involve conversation. They involve interlocutors that represent different viewpoints. And I take it that they are a kind of invitation to do philosophy in that spirit. So if we were to approach the dialogues from just one mindset, In some sense, we wouldn't be doing what Plato is inviting us to do. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the richness of Plato's dialogues that you can you can read them and reread them and discover new things. And you can read them from different lenses and different perspectives and with different questions in mind. And you can sort of join the conversation and you can almost feel like you're one of the interlocutors and you're kind of thinking about the same questions for yourself. But To do all of that, I think it is actually quite important to not come to it with one particular mindset, but with a kind of willingness to, you know, to consider that almost like an exercise, a practice to to start to do philosophy yourself. Yeah, I could definitely see that in your writing, because when I was reading your essays, I saw a lot of, you know, logical analysis that's, you know, 
prompted by Plato's writing. And uh, I think those are all very interesting to me. So I really liked one of your quotes in your essay, which says, Our ambitions in understanding the world and knowing what a good life is must be framed by an awareness of human limitations. So maybe we could call, you know, Plato's invitation to study philosophy a sort of ambition to in understanding the world and knowing what a good life is. So how do you think that, you know, this study of Plato's dialogue could be framed by using your word an awareness of human limitations for us? That's a great question. It's, it very much is a question that goes to the heart of the apology. The apology quotes this injunction from the Delphic Oracle, know thyself. And in, you know, in modern philosophy, that has often been misunderstood as if it was a modern idea of self-knowledge, of somehow soul-searching or something like that. But presumably the, the ancient idea of knowing thyself was that when you enter the temple at Delphi, the Apollo's temple at Delphi, this injunction, know thyself, reminds you that you're not a god. So you're supposed to you know, know that you are mortal when you walk into this temple. And then Plato's Apology is picking that up, but reinterprets it, not in a religious sense primarily, but in the sense that, you know, when you realize that you are mortal, that you're not a god, that you're a human being, you have to ask yourself what it would be for a human being to lead a good life and what are the questions that pertain to leading a good human life. And then it turns out that those are what Plato calls big questions. So those are, in some sense, then questions that do relate to divinity and those sorts of things, because the question of, you know, whether you think that there are gods or what you think the nature of the universe is and those sorts of questions, they do pertain to how you lead a human life. But the proposal in the apology, and that's something that comes up in a lot of platonic dialogues and something that interests me a lot, the proposal is that we we get into these big questions by asking ourselves, what should I do in my life? And because that turns out to be a difficult question, because it turns out to be difficult to figure out what is good and bad, that is why we also end up studying the universe or studying physics, as we would put this today, or you know, other really difficult stuff. Yes, I think the know thyself inscription definitely reflects what you were saying about the human limitations. Since you mentioned the oracle, I have a question that's related to it. Because in your essay, you wrote that the oracle puzzle is at the heart of apology. So just to let our listener know, the oracle puzzle refers to the paradox that one, Socrates knows that he's not wise. Two, the oracle says that no one is wiser than Socrates. So you offer a solution to this puzzle by differentiating the human wisdom and the genuine wisdom. Socrates possesses the human wisdom which means that he's wise to realize his own ignorance as a human being. So the oracle is right in this way. However, Socrates does not possess genuine wisdom, which is the knowledge of the greatest things, for example, what virtue is and what justice is. Then this means that Socrates is also right. Is this a valid way of saying what you feel is at the heart of the apology? No, that sounds great. Yeah, I think the... 
funny thing in a way is that the apology is kind of written like some Greek tragedies. There's a kind of hero and that is Socrates and he receives an oracle at the beginning. So, you know, what is an oracle? An oracle is some divinity is telling you something that you don't understand. And then you start out on this journey of making sense of it. And because God said it, it's bound to be true. So even if you don't understand it, you have to somehow figure it out. And so what is said to Socrates is, well, that no, that he's wiser than everyone else or no one is wiser than he is. So he takes that to mean that he is wiser than everyone else. But then there's also what he takes to know about himself, namely that he doesn't know any of these big and important things. So what he needs to do is somehow make sense of two premises. And one of these premises is that he's wiser than everyone else. And the other premise is that he doesn't know anything big or important. And that is, as it were, what starts off the plot, if you like, of the apology. So he's now walking around talking to other people. And now he wants to see how he could possibly really be, in some sense, wiser than, the other, the, than these other people, even though he doesn't know anything, any of the big and important things. And then, as you say, it turns out that, you know, both premises really are true because other people take themselves to know these big and important things. And that's a flaw. The thought is that if you take yourself to know these big and important things, then that somehow prevents you from what really matters, namely inquiry into these big and important things, because you think you already have the answers. So other people are worse off and they are less wise than Socrates because they think they know the answers. And Socrates is better off than they are because he's aware that he does not have the answers to these big and important things. And, you know, what are these big and important things? They are what is good and bad? What is justice? What are the gods? How should we relate to divinity? What is the nature of the universe? Another expression that comes up in the apologies, matters of life and death. And that, in a sense, probably includes what we should think the human soul is. Should we think the soul is immortal? Should we think the soul is some kind of connection to divinity? Or should we think it is just stuff? So those are the big and important things. And you can see that those are questions that, in some sense, they are ethical questions because they relate to how you lead your life. But in another sense, they are incredibly expansive because at the end of the day you will also study the nature of the universe you will also ask what is divinity you will ask what is the soul what is the mind and so on and those are you know those are evidently very big questions yes with those two you know different definitions of wisdom one is the wisdom of the greatest thing the what what is what a good life is and the other wisdom is just the wisdom to realize one's own ignorance that with those two different definitions, Socrates really could be both, you know, wise and not wise. Do you think there's a reason why the oracle uses a different definition of wisdom from that of Socrates? In a sense, I think that that is a kind of play with this tradition that comes up also in the tragedies where somehow part of what you need to do when you figure out how some divinity is right is, is that they somehow speak in riddles. So the oracle is not something that is plain spoken. 
And that's that's part of the as if uh, the Greek tradition of what an oracle is. It kind of, it kind of gives you a puzzle, and part of giving you a puzzle is what philosophers call equivocation, or you you know you use one term in two senses, and that actually comes up in in quite a few tragedies or or other Greek poetic writings. For example, in you know one one example that I've used in the past is that Euripides in one of his plays uses this idea where he says wisdom is not wisdom. And so that is almost a pro proverbial thing to say in, in Greek poetry. And when you say that, you say wisdom is not wisdom, what do you mean? Well, you consider with your intonation or whatever flag that one kind of wisdom is, is the elevated, ambitious, really high level kind of wisdom. And then there's another wisdom where, you know, maybe that is kind of what the sophists have, or that is what some smart guy has. And somehow we will also call the smart guy somehow wise, but then we use the word with a different intonation or a different context or whatever. And that kind of disambiguation, that kind of resolving a puzzle by seeing that terms can be used in different senses is not just a poetic device. It is also a very philosophical thing, because if you want to begin to do epistemology, if you want to study what is knowledge, what is ignorance, what is wisdom, what is expertise, part of what you need to do is you need to look at the different ways in which we use these notions and somehow figure out how they interrelate, which of these ways in which we use a notion in everyday talk maybe lends itself to developing a theory of knowledge or a theory of wisdom. And for that reason, I think it's, you know, it's both sort of playing with the poetic tradition, but it's also leading us into the philosophical field of epistemology where we ask, okay, if someone can use the notion of wisdom in two different ways, then let's ask, what is wisdom? And that is, in a sense, the question that we should be asking. This is very interesting because I've I've always been thinking about, you know, why those two definitions of wisdom, like why they're both called wisdom, even though they mean different things. But now you point out that, you know, it's the poetic tradition and it also it's also a kind of a philosophical invitation that, you know, invites you to think about what is what what really is wisdom when we when we say it, what, what do we mean when we say it? Yeah, I think that was a really helpful response. And you know, that is that becomes very much a theme in in Socrates' philosophy and also Plato's philosophy to pick up terms that we use in everyday talk and then to ask, you know, so you're using that term all the time, but do you actually know what it means? So what is justice? What is wisdom? And then once someone is putting that question to you as a kind of direct question, all of a sudden it seems like you don't know the answer. And that is meant to somehow also be perplexing because we are using these concepts all the time. You know, you you complain that someone did something that was unjust or you think that someone is an idiot. And, and then so you're invoking notions of wisdom and foolishness and so on. But if someone asks, you know, you know, what is ignorance or what is wisdom, then it turns out that is really hard to to come up with the definition or an account. And and that of course is is a major motif in a lot of the dialogues that as soon as we try to say in a kind of general and theoretical way what something is, we realize that we don't know it. And then we need to go back to all the various ways in which maybe ordinarily we use these notions and we sort of try and piece together some premises so that we can work towards an account. Now I'm going to talk about uh, the other paradox that's in the apology that you also mentioned in your essay. So, you know, Socrates, sometimes he says, 
he knows that he knows nothing important. And one difficulty of that is, Socrates sometimes makes claim like, "I know it is bad and shameful to do injustice and disobey one's better." So you have some、uh, very interesting thoughts about how this "quote unquote" knowledge puzzle works. So、uh, I wonder if you could explain them to us here. Thank you. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that that really interests me about the apology is, you know, the apology interests me just on its own behalf, but it also interests me because it plays a huge role in the ancient skeptical tradition, and the ancient skeptics, of course. Self-identify as Socratics, and they think Socrates is somehow their hero. And then, when you know, when people describe that story, and you read maybe you know some intro to philosophy, sometimes then the apology is quoted as saying that Socrates describes himself as knowing nothing. What have you heard about Socrates? I heard about him in high school, and I had like philosophy as a subject, so that's what I. He said, "Like the only thing I know is that I don't know what was it, something like that." Like, <laughs> and that I think is a big mistake. So the the relevant sentence, the sentence that is sort of misleadingly sometimes translated as "I know that I know nothing," I think should be translated as "I know that I'm not an expert in anything." So where this notion of expertise is sort of, sort of this sort of high level notion of wisdom. And it is very well possible not to be an expert in, you know, the big and important questions in life, and still know a lot of things. Now, people sometimes kind of make lists of the sort of things that Socrates here and there across the dialogues somehow says he knows, and some of these things are really very sort of everyday and flat-footed. Like he knows his name, he knows how to get to the marketplace, he knows. I don't know who is the father of Theaetetus and stuff like this, but he also you know sometimes says things like what you just quoted that he knows that I don't know that injustice is a kind of ignorance. He, for example, says that he knows that. Now, what should we do about those kinds of moments where he says that kind of thing? My own view is that that is part of, as it were, surveying. Different ways in which we use knowledge vocabulary, and sometimes when we say, "I just know this," we kind of express a hope that eventually we will be able to prove it. But we are strongly committed to it. So sometimes when Socrates says, for example, in in the Meno, Socrates and Meno talk about whether investigation is possible, and they don't really have a complete theory of inquiry and investigation. But Socrates says that you know the one thing that he knows is that he would be lazy not to investigate, and to my mind, that is the sort of thing where Socrates sort of says with a certain emphasis, "Well, I just know this," but also like in the context flags that he doesn't yet have a full theory to back to back it up. So what it means then to say I know this is. Well, that is my demonstrandum. That is the sort of thing that I want to be able to show, and I'm really committed to it. I just think that that is true. But given that, otherwise, I'm kind of openly declaring that I don't have the answers to the big and important things. I don't yet have a full theory to back it up. I cannot yet give you a full explanation or justification of these claims. But that is compatible. I think that is also kind of an ordinary observation that many of us. You know, encounter in their own lives. We often don't feel that we have a full theory of something, but we are 
really committed to some idea. So basically, when Socrates makes a claim, like I know something, he's rather expressing a commitment to that belief, not saying that he has a fully developed theory about it. I would like to wrap this conversation up with this final question: What makes this text? The apology still important and relevant for people to read today. I would say that the apology is is extraordinarily readable. It's just a couple of pages, and the conversations that Socrates has with people are recognizable. It's as if you walk around the city and you talk to the baker where you buy your bread, and you talk to the priest in your church, and you talk to the politician who is running for office, and you kind of recognize all these characters. is is amazing in a way how how lively and how recognizable it is. And then, even though it is so much situated in ordinary life and so readable, it leads you into these big questions about what would it be to do. Be a wise person. Why am I not a wise person? Why are all those people who claim to be wise really not at all wise? What is knowledge? What is ignorance? Those kinds of questions that then can keep you busy for a while. But what I really like about it, and why I think a lot of people should read it, is that those kinds of questions are approached from. Settings that are situated in ordinary conversations, settings that we all recognize, and then these questions are developed with incredible clarity. Thank you for taking your time, even though you're on your trip. We really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I, you I really、me. enjoyed it. Thanks very much. No, I enjoyed it. Those were great questions. Alexander Nehamas has been a professor in the humanities, philosophy, and comparative literature at Princeton University. He has chaired the Council of the Humanities, the program in Hellenic Studies, and he was the founding director of the Society of Fellows in Liberal Arts. Influenced by the place of philosophy in the life in ancient Greece and Rome, as well as by Nietzsche, he questions the transformation of philosophy from a way of living into a purely academic discipline. Hey, welcome, Professor Nehams. So I would just start with this general question: What is your personal feeling toward this person, Socrates? Well, it's、uh, funny that you call him a person <laughs> because he really is a character. He's a literary character, mostly created by Plato. We have some more information about him, of course, from Xenophon and Aristotle, and Aristophanes, who makes fun of him in his play. But the personality that we have, the personality that we keep returning to again and again and again, is really a creature of Plato. What's interesting is precisely the fact that you call him a person, because he is so lively and so vivid and so convincing that he sounds as if he must have been just like that. <laughs> But in fact, we have no real idea of what he was like. So. As you said, he's essentially a character created by Plato. So, what mindset should we bring to Plato's apology to make the most of it? Well, I think we need to consider the kind of character Socrates is, 
And the reasons that Plato had for portraying him as the character he portrays him. So we need to think both about the character itself and about why is he like this? And then, you know, ask why is it that somebody like this has created such incredible interest over the history of the West that we are still here in this podcast at the other end of the world talking about him. I mean, speaking of this character, Socrates, a lot of people just think of the Socratic irony. And um, mm-hmm. you point out a profound instance of it in your essay. And I'm just going to read a quote now. We have someone, meaning Socrates, who precisely in disavowing ethical knowledge and ability to supply it to others, succeeded in living as moral, if not necessarily as perfectly human, a life as anyone ever did who belonged to a tradition he himself had initiated. Mm -hmm. So why do you think Socrates ended up creating this ironic or paradoxical difference between his claims and his deeds? Is it accidental that it is Socrates who lived a very moral life? Well, there are two, two issues here. One is that I don't think he's ironic when he says he doesn't know. I think most people think he is ironic, and by thinking that, they turn him into a kind of the prototype of the modern law professor, who supposedly, the law schools, they supposedly teach what they call the Socratic method. How do you feel about the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates? I actually wasn't a fan of his much. How come? The Socratic you like method wasn't uh, something I, I connected with, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, Annoying? Oh, but <laughs> don't you learn that in, uh, yeah, yep. look how that works out. <laughs> but in law school, the professor knows the answer extremely well already, and he just wants the students to get to it by themselves. That's a huge difference between what the law schools do and what Socrates did, because Socrates really didn't have the answer to the question he was asking. And that's where the real paradox is, that you may want to call it an ironic, because here's what he, th- what he thinks. He thinks, you need to know what virtue is if you're going to live a virtuous and a happy life. I, Socrates, don't know what virtue is, and so I don't know how to live a virtuous and a happy life, and if I don't know how to do it, then I can't live it. And yet the way that Plato portrays him and the way that Plato describes him, he lived as virtuous a life as anybody ever did. So this is what, you know, technically speaking, philosophy would call an inconsistent triad. All three of those things can't be right. If you think you don't know what you need to live well, and then you live well, then how do you explain it? (laughs) This is, for me, the real mystery and the real irony of Socrates. And I think myself that Plato was never sure that he resolved it. In other words, the amazing thing about the Platonic Socrates is that he's a character whose own creator suggests that he doesn't really understand what makes him tick, what makes him work. And that, I think, is one of the most serious features that makes him sound like a real person. Because if your own creator says, I don't understand, then there must be, one thinks, a person there whom the author couldn't understand. And that makes him, as I said, 
absolutely real to us. So yeah, I totally agree that so- when Socrates is claiming that I'm not a teacher, he really means it. Absolutely. He's sure that he doesn't have the knowledge of the greatest things. He doesn't have the knowledge of what virtue, virtue is. Virtue, what virtue is, yeah. So in your writing, as you said, Socrates does hold some ethical claims or like virtue, sure. justice is virtue, um, that sort of thing. And in your, in your writing, you explain that he holds those beliefs only because he has never lost an intellectual bout when uh, holding them. Right, right, well put. So, and the way he calls it is dialectic. Exactly, because all, all of what we see in Plato's dialogues, and then we see it also in many of Aristotle's books, is that the Greeks were extremely dedicated to this mode of discussion that they call dialectic. Dialectic has very strict rules. I mean, in, in the Socratic dialogues, it's, they're not as strict, but when Aristotle comes to codify the method of dialectic, he uses extremely strict rules for how you have to go about it. The basic idea is that it has two people, a questioner and an answer. Say, justice is power. And then the questioner has to get the answer to contradict himself. That is a basic idea. So in a way, you can see that this is what happens in the Socratic dialogue. Somebody comes up and tells him, oh, I know what piety is. I know what courage is. I know what justice is. And then Socrates says, oh, how interesting. I wanted to know what those things are. Can you explain to me this little uh, question that I have? And then that little question, of course, ends up destroying the thesis of whoever it was who said what piety or justice or courage was in the first place. So it is dialectic now. Truth and dialectic is basically invincibility. If nobody can make you admit that you're wrong, if nobody can show that you're wrong, then, in fact, you can't be wrong. Yeah, I found this difference you point out between what dialectic originally is and what was and what it is now very interesting. In your writing, you agree with Nietzsche that the effect of this dialectic is not very persuasive, arouses mistrust, and is easier than anything to erase. So I could see some reason for this, but many people also believe that it's only an idea that has withstood many intellectual challenges that could have validity and strength. Yes, no, I think that's right. And I think Nietzsche is not quite as much of an enemy of dialectic and, uh, and logic and reasoning. What he says is that if somebody needs to believe something, it's very unlikely, if not impossible, that you will convince them to give it up by argument. What you need to do is to stop their need for what it is that they need to believe rather than to convince them by argument. Because no matter how you convince somebody, if they feel that they need to believe, to hold on to something, they will continue doing it. That's his point, right? Is that dialectic is not enough. You need to address the psychology of the person involved, not just the logic. And he says at one point, you know, he says, you know, he was not a friend of Christianity, anything but, but he says, as long as Christianity is needed, there'll be Christians. No matter what it is that we atheists and anti-Christians say, 
And I think that's a wise thing to say, that it's not enough to just reason people out of their views. You need to find out what it is that makes them want to hold the views they have. And if you think that, that makes men, what makes them hold the views they have is not a good thing, then you try to unroot it. But you mm-hmm. don't do that by argument. Yeah, I see. I see. So essentially, it's when confronting belief, reasonable argument, rational argument could be weak sometimes. It depends on the belief. If if you want to to convince me that it's not raining outside, that's easy to do. You just make me look. Beliefs like that are perfectly subject to dialectical refutation. Mm-hmm. It's values that are very difficult. It's you see. beliefs that's connected with values. That's right. That are very exactly. important. It's those beliefs that depend more on the commitment to the value than on their relationship to the facts. <laughs> yes, yes, I see. There was one very intriguing thing you said in your essay, What Did Socrates Teach? I'm going to read the quote now. All Socrates was concerned about was the salvation of his own and not of any other soul. But mm-hmm. like in Apology, you know, Socrates talks about how it's to the benefit of the citizens that he talks to them. And also he's being a gadfly that helps awaken right. the city of Athens. So it seems to me that he's actually presenting himself as serving a social purpose uh, when he's talking to others. That's a very good point, Hank. And you caught me in almost a contradiction. Uh, but let me say what I believe about that I think the purpose of the apology is so to speak apologetic so he is presenting a Socrates who is much more concerned with the welfare of the world than he is with his own however Socrates desire to learn what virtue is even if it's primarily concerned about himself, if he finds out what virtue is, he will also be helping the person he's talking to. So there's always an indirect benefit that he confers to people, provided he gets the answer that he needs. Right? So if you and I discuss what virtue is, and we actually end up finding out what it is, even if I started out saying, oh, I need to find out what, what virtue is, and, you know, this guy either knows and doesn't tell me or knows and he will tell me, uh, or maybe doesn't even know, but in discussing the situation, we might even reach a conclusion. You are actually helping other people. And if you help one person become virtuous, then other people will see how it's done and also try to imitate them and emulate them. So there is an indirect benefit, even though his primary goal, I think, is to find out how he can live the best life that he can. But by living the best life that he can, he ideally would show other people how to live the best life that they can. And that's where his uh, social significance and value comes into the picture. Yes, that makes a lot of sense, that Socrates is... On a so personal... I got away. I got away. This is what dialectic is, you see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me. You made me. You showed me that I might be contradicting yourself mm-hmm. and I and myself, and I tried to get away from it. This is exactly what dialectic is all about. Yes. So we have an example of it right here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
basically Socrates is on a personal quest to figure out how to live a virtuous life.、Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he actually ends up benefiting the per- the people he talked to as he's on this quest. And even if they don't know what virtue is, he believes that if he shows them that they don't know what they thought they know, he's already benefited them. Because it's only when you realize that you're ignorant that you'll start start that you'll try to start learning. You see, if you are ignorant of your ignorance, you're not going to do anything. If you already know, you're not going to do anything. So the only person who's likely to learn something is a person who's aware that he's ignorant, and that, of course, is what he says is what makes no other Athenian wiser than he is, because at least I know what I don't know, whereas they don't. I've actually been going to people on the street, not not asking them what is virtue, but asking them, just what do you think of Socrates? And a lot of them just said, "Well, I know he's a philosopher, and that's all I know." So、yeah. it's very hard to get very thoughtful responses from a random person on the street. But but look, listen. At the same time, isn't this quite amazing that they even know the name? Yes, yes, this is amazing. So like, that's already an amazing thing when you think about it. The guy lived. You know, twenty five hundred years ago,、mm-hmm. in a different part of the world, speaking a language that no one speaks anymore, and you go to somebody in the street and you say, "Who was he?" and they say, "Well, he was a philosopher." Well, that's pretty amazing. Ask them who Callicles was; they won't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Ask them. Ask them who Immanuel Kant is, and many of them will never have heard of him. Right. Yes, and I would like to just wrap this conversation up with this final answer. What makes this text apology still important and relevant for people to read even today? Well, for one thing, it shows a personality the likes of which we've never seen before or since. It shows somebody who is completely unafraid to die, who is completely unafraid to compromise any principle of his, no matter how. How central or how peripheral? Who speaks rhetorically in the most admirable way, having started like every good reader starts by saying, "I don't know about rhetoric, and I can only speak plainly." <laughs> so that and produces one of the greatest rhetorical exercises ever made. And there is this amazing, amazing end where. He almost seems to prod the judges to to sentence him to death. I don't think he did it on purpose in a way because he probably thought that sentence being sentenced to death is an unjust thing, and he would never, as a just person, cause other people to do an unjust thing. But he doesn't even know whether death is an evil. He says, "I'm. I don't know if it's a bad thing. Maybe it's going to be great, and I'm going to be talking to all the great heroes, or maybe it's going to be like an eternal sleep. I don't know that that's a bad thing. So, dying for him is not by itself an evil. You see, and that's another. You know, we all think of death as the worst thing that can happen to us, by and large, and here's somebody who looks at it with the utmost equanimity, as You know, another event in his life. That's pretty amazing. There are not that many people who can do that. You know, especially people who are not fighting 
for a nationalist warlike cause. I mean, you know, revolutionaries who sacrifice their lives for the country are one thing. They're in the middle of an extraordinarily tense and complex situation where if they don't sacrifice their life, you know, the, their country may not be saved. Socrates was not in a situation like that. For him, it was simply a matter of principle. It had nothing to do with ultimate gain. And that's also another reason that makes the Apology an absolutely crucial text. Nietzsche wrote once that, he says, there are some books that one needs to read in order to understand the antiquity. But there are some other books for which one needs to understand the antiquity in order to read them. And that's the Apology. Mm.